Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 28th, 2022. Um, we're on trees, or we have been on trees, and we continue to talk about trees at the weekend. Had a wonderful conversation with the, the great writer Tony Hiss, the author of Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, his initiative to protect half the American land to maintain the integrity of the American soil and earth. I thought it was a tremendous conversation. Uh, we've done a lot of conversations actually about trees and greenery. Last year, we had Kinari Webb on the show talking about her quest to heal the world. Uh, she has a wonderful new book out, Guardian of the Trees, A Journey of Hope Through Healing the Planet. Trees for Webb, as I think for Hiss, have both a, a real and symbolic significance. Uh, I also did a show last year, one of my favorite actually, with a young writer, Jordan Salama, uh, who journeyed through Colombia's Magdalena River, um, wonderful book, Every Day the River Changes, Four Weeks Down the Magdalena. The title of the book might have been uh, Every Day the Forest Changes, because it was uh, like the other two books I mentioned, um, uh, a poem to nature. And today we're back on trees. Uh, my guest is John W. Reed, the co-author of another tremendous book on trees and the importance of green. Uh, the book is called Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. And John joins us from Sebastopol, just north of San Francisco. It's a small world. We discovered in our pre-show chat that our son and daughter were in the same year at the same uh, school in Sonoma. So, uh, John, welcome. It's a small world and it's a big world. And you definitely... Um, articulate the size of the world, particularly the size of the world's forests in Evergreen. Tell me the background. You're the co-author of the book. It's a travel book. It's a science book. Above all else, it's an environmental book. Why did you write the book? Well, thanks for having me here, Andrew. Uh, I think I wrote the book because I couldn't go any longer without writing the book. Uh, both my co-author and I had spent our careers uh, working to conserve the world's forests and sort of going through the uh, the trial and error, the the joys and sorrows, uh, and, and the sort of accumulated experience of working to perpetuate these important ecosystems. Uh, and uh, I, I think when we decided to do it, uh, for me, uh, the first thing I wanted to convey to people is that the, the forests are still there. Uh, contrary to what you hear uh, in the media uh, every day, uh, it's, it's, you know, the bad stuff is happening, but only the bad stuff makes it into people's attention uh, far away from these forests. And, you know, Tom and I, uh, my co-author Tom Lovejoy and I have the privilege of working in these forests and sort of the joy of being out there and being in nature that's really functioning, that's got all of its parts, got all of its biological diversity, um, and wanted to bring 
the the uh, it sounds funny, but just the existence of intact, healthy nature to people's uh, attention. At the same time, as we're real about the threats that forests face, um, and the um, the import, there, there's a nuanced question here about which forest to save. We really, at this point, need to save them all. But we wanted to draw attention to forests that, even though they're the biggest ones, are the ones that people know the least about because they're remote. And wanted to just get into these places, show what's happening, the pressures on them, and what's working. What are people succeeding uh, in doing to, to keep these forests uh, alive? And I'd say, as sort of um, a third part to, to the answer, we also want to get above the level of strategy and tactics about, well, how do you do effective conservation and help people to think about changing our attitude about our world and about the natural world and about the non-human world uh, that we share the planet with, uh, because that relationship needs uh, a reboot uh, and soon. Like so many of the other books, actually, we've been covering on the show recently, there's a poetic quality. I don't quite know how you did that, given you wrote it with someone else. I always think two authors usually ruin a book, but this book hasn't been ruined by you and uh, Thomas Lovejoy. Uh, for, for those of us who have never really spent any time in a forest, John, explain what they're like, why they're different from just going to the park. Well, um, you know, that makes me think about experiences I've had in tropical forests where you'll be um, walking along a country road and the road ends and you go into the forest and immediately the temperature drops by 10 or 15 degrees uh, because the way the, the trees are photosynthesizing uh, and uh, transpiring vapor uh, creates this natural air conditioning. So you're in this air conditioned space. And then if you start to listen, uh, there is this uh, multi-layered soundtrack uh, of insects, birds, often uh, primates, you know, whatever the species composition uh, happens to be in that forest. Uh, and, you know, there's also something that all forests have, which they, they actually exhale chemicals that make people feel good. Um, so, you know, it's hard for me just to say what other people feel in the forest, but I feel um, a sense of their vitality uh, and embrace. And, uh, you know, as I've learned more from scientists about the way forests uh, live as communities, communicate, have agency, uh, have plans, um, I, I, I've begun to be able to think of them um, as beings that are aware of my presence. Uh, so it's not just a one-way uh, street. Um, and uh, so I think about that when I go into a forest. Uh, it's interesting that in, in many ways, I think what you're talking about reflects what Canary Webb told me and, and several other guests, that there seems to be some odd connection between our disassociation with nature and the epidemic of uh, mental ill health in, uh, in the 2020s. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's one way to perhaps confront our epidemic of, of mental illness, going well, back I, into the forest? 
Yeah, I think it's more than conjecture at this point. There's there's plenty of science that's corroborating the mental health benefits of being in nature and the mental health benefits of interacting with with non-human organisms. Uh, so I know that you know teen uh, the teen years can be the most delicate in terms of mental health for many yeah, people. Yeah, we as parents of kids who went to Sonoma Academy, we both know that, right? Yeah, and I and I'm thinking of my own teen years and how getting being out in nature um, was my solace. It was the place that I went to to center and ground and feel uh, good to go sort of rejoin the fray uh, of my my teen uh, community. So I know it meant a lot for me, and and I just you hear countless stories of people who find healing there. Uh, and it's not that every bit of nature and every bit of forest is a, is a benign environment. Um, the forest uh, challenges you. You have to be careful. Remember the way the way to get back out. Uh, in the you know in the tropics, I've you know, almost stepped on deadly snakes more than once. Uh, had to run away from from dangerous animals. So uh, it is a place also that requires you to be real uh, and and you can't sort of move through that system theoretically um, and, and necessarily be safe uh, coming out of it. The subtitle of the book is Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet, Not Save Humanity. Why are big forests so essential to what you say is saving, and I use that word carefully, the planet. Why why must we save big forests if we are indeed to save the planet? So uh, size here is a proxy for the intactness of the ecosystems. So when forests, when big forests get turned into smaller forests, it's meanings that they're it means that they're being chopped up by things like roads, power lines, pipelines. Uh, industrial farms, factories, mines, et cetera. When those things happen, the forest uh, edges dry out, the, the wind uh, blows into the forest and fells trees, creates different conditions on their edges. Uh, the forests become more prone to fire, they lose carbon, they lose species. And so the smaller we make our forests, the less resilient they will be to climate change, the less they'll be doing to help us solve climate change by storing carbon, and the less they'll be doing to hold uh, our biological diversity and really to continue to be these workhorses of evolution on our planet that have the highest concentrations of species uh, and are generating uh, the species of the future. So it's important, uh, the, the size and intactness of forests that enables them to perform all those functions uh, that keep our planet livable for humanity, uh, livable for other species, um, and also just an interesting place to be. Um, so that's why big forests are so important. And, and also, um, uh, you know, we try to point out in the book that many of the things that turn big forests into small forests are irreversible. Uh, and the kinds of environmental changes we need to be most focused on are the ones that we can't do over. In other words, we lose it, we lose it. There's no way back. 
Yeah, and that's the, the case with species. And it's the case, incidentally, with, with culture. Once we lose a language, there's no getting it back. And what we found as we did our research for this book is that the diversity of languages are concentrated in intact forest ecosystems. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the indigenous cultures are also an area that we've talked a lot about in our show over the last few months. Uh, I know your day job, John, is you work at uh, uh, Neotero, which is uh, uh, a, a, a nonprofit uh, securing indigenous guardianship of, of vital ecosystems. How much can we learn from indigenous peoples about respecting, loving, appreciating, nurturing the forest? Uh you know, that reminds me of trying to, I was up in, in Canada doing research for the book in the Yukon, and I met elders of the First Nation uh, Cascadena people. And I asked anybody I met um, during doing research for the book, I asked them, well, how do you say forest in your language? Um, and in the Amazon, I heard many things like home, shady place, um, the world uh, in the, the the casket elders they actually couldn't answer the question right away. It's like asking, in other words, it's like asking a a, a fish what the sea means. Yeah, the, there's a there's a wonderful quote that it involves unprintable language in David Foster Wallace's book um, Infinite Jest uh, about exactly that question. Um, uh, but the, these elders, they finally came up with a couple of options. One of them was among the sticks. And the other mm. one was densely spruced. So forest is not a thing. It's a prepositional phrase. It's a condition. It's a relationship. And it's suitably uh, poetic. It's not utilitarian. And, and so I think the indigenous peoples can help blow our minds, uh, open the doors uh, to realizing that there are so many different ways of seeing these things uh, and their ways not to romanticize but their ways are actually built on hundreds of generations of being in the same place and seeing those places change and having relationships and having your ancestors go back far enough that you can't name the individuals anymore um, and even they sort of fade into relationships with other kinds of beings. You know, there's so many peoples that, that I've been exposed to trace their origins to other animals, to tigers, to cockatoos, uh, to, to caribou, uh, to bears. Um, and they sort of go back to a, to a vanishing point where the human and the non-human interacted, conversed. Um, and really it's, you know, you can see it as a metaphor for evolution. Of course, we came from the same place. Of course, we're made of the same stuff. Well, if you want to blow your minds without going into the forest, you need to have a look at uh, Thomas W. Reed and Thomas E. Lovejoy's new book, Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. Um, we are going to, um, uh, John, we're going to take a short break. And after the break, I want to talk about the diversity of forests from the Arctic to Africa um, to Southeast Asia. I want to talk a little bit about the diversity of forests that you describe in the book. And then I want to come to some concrete fixes 
uh, on the carbon front in terms of actually protecting our forests. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with John W. Reed, who's blowing our mind as the co-author of Evergreen. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with John W. Reed, the author of a wonderful new book on the world's forests called Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. One of the things, and I John can't claim to be much of an expert uh, on forests, is one of the things that really struck me about the book was how you focus on the diversity of forests in the world. You, you write about the North American forests, the taiga, uh, the Amazon rainforest, uh, the Congo rainforest. How different are all these forests in the world? And why should we focus on their differences rather than their similarities? Well, you left one off, which is New Guinea. It's the uh, <clears throat> it's the smallest of the big five. Right, and it's um, the uh, the new. I, I didn't. I, I just forgot to add it, but it's the forest <laughs> of New Guinea, right? So, uh, and it's the one that I was least familiar with, I guess. I mean, everybody knows there's a forest in the Amazon. Yeah, well, that's a good point. You know, one thing that Tom and I did as we were writing this book is we would ask friends and neighbors to to name the five biggest forests in the world. And the Amazon was the only one people could consistently get, um, which was another motivation for us to, uh, to share this, this information. Um, to your question, I think we do, we do focus on some of the things um, in terms of protecting our planet that all the forests are doing. But uh, Tom, my co-author, was focused in a beautiful way, I think, in sharing the awe of nature and the wonder as uh, it, something that's uh, just leads to a fulfilling life, but also motivates people to care. 
Um, and I think these differences between the forests uh, are part of that wonder. Uh, the fact that in the Congo, you have elephants wandering around in the forest. Um, and in the Amazon, uh, you have uh, the Western Hemisphere's biggest cat, uh, jaguars. Uh, and you have these huge catfish that migrate all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to Bolivia, uh, 4,000 miles away. And uh, in, uh, in uh, you know, I got my first chance to go to Russia um, during the research for this book. And before I went there, I did not know that Lake Baikal had freshwater seals uh, mm. or that there were deer with fangs in Siberia. Or we're reading so many bad things about Russia. I don't want to talk about the Ukraine, certainly in this show. But um, one of the things that I was struck with, and I didn't know this either in your book, is that the one thing you argue has outlived Stalin and Bolshevism is the uh, Bagujinsky nature reserve. So in some ways, the Russians are pioneers in protecting forests. They are really. And, and I, the Russians I've met are, are nature lovers to the core. It's very interesting to travel in Russia and see in their pharmacies, they have herbal remedies from the forests. And everybody goes out to the forest and collects food, berries and mushrooms. Uh, and so I think Russia is coming to signify something very unfortunate for us at this moment, uh, which is tyranny, uh, aggression, uh, war crimes, all these things that are legitimately uh, leveled at, uh, at uh, President Putin. Uh, the Russian people, uh, it, it's a different story. And there have been these uh, trailblazing nature advocates in Russia uh, going back over 100 years. Uh, so they created, they created the first protected places by a, 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 a um, colonial or, or modern society. Yeah, uh, it's this uh, nature reserve. Uh, right. I, I didn't know of its existence. What are we going to do, though? I mean, uh, Tony Hiss talks about protecting much of nature in America, sort of going back in some ways, I guess, to Teddy Roosevelt, protected space. But we need to do more than that, don't we, John? Um, we did a show recently, actually it was last year, with Chris Goodall on carbon emissions. He has a new book out, What We Need to Do Now for a Zero Carbon Future. How do we protect the forests of the world? So in our book, we, um, we highlight three things that need to be done to protect these forests. The first one is to acknowledge and support the customary land stewardship and rights of indigenous people who are still in their forests. Uh, the indigenous people uh, control um, about a third of the remaining intact forests in the world, whether under de facto or, or formal arrangements. Uh, and their stewardship uh, of carbon in the forest uh, is 30 times more effective than on unprotected forest land outside. Is that realistic though, John? I mean, it's great on a show like this. It's fine to argue this in places like San Francisco or Sebastopol or Sonoma, but is this the kind of thing that you can actually execute, achieve in Washington, DC? 
I think so. Uh, and I think there's, uh, you know, I won't talk about um, Washington, D.C., but you see it in, uh, uh, for example, in Brazil. Brazil uh, also gets into the news for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, you, um, you, you, you talk a little bit about Brazil and, and, and the current political leadership. But Brazil, when they rewrote their constitution after the dictatorship in the late 80s, they enshrined indigenous land rights. And now there are uh, 250 million acres of designated indigenous reserves uh, that are doing great in the Amazon. Does Bolsonaro, does Bolsonaro come out of this as badly as he comes out of most stuff, or is he actually yes. a little bit more nuanced? Worse. As bad as you could possibly come out of it. He takes great pride, essentially, in destroying the rainforest. Destroying the rainforest and wrapping the destruction in racist rhetoric. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it, it couldn't be worse. What about, John, the role of, an, and, I, and I know you've got a couple of other points in your bullets in terms of fixing it. We did a show recently on Davos, on the super rich of Davos with the New York Times writer Peter Goodman. One of the people he really critiques in this is the Salesforce CEO founder, Mark Benioff. But you introduced Benioff at the end of your book, talking about his trillion trees idea. Can the, the oligarchs and the billionaires, can they play a role in saving the forest legitimately? I think everybody can play a role, but um, it's not going to be by planting a trillion trees. Um, so the other parts, the other things that we uh, underscore as most important are expanding the areas, uh, the protected areas, in addition to the indigenous lands, and just keeping new roads out of the intact forests. Roads are the vectors of destruction, uh, and the, uh, the, the value of roadlessness uh, was recognized in the early 20th century by our visionary conservationist, uh, Aldo Leopold, um, and it just plays out everywhere we look. Uh, that yeah, I think you're in, in this sense, you're very much, I won't say on the same road, you're on the same page as Tony Hiss. I don't know if you've seen his book, Rescuing the Planet, but it seems as if in, in many ways you're arguing the same thing. Yeah, but I, I would say, you know, the what, what we write is that um, Benioff and uh, you call them oligarchs, the rich and powerful of the world, if they get behind the ideas that we're recommending in the book, they could do uh, an immense amount of good. And then finally, um, John, you're up in Sebastopol. Everybody knows about the terrible fires. Fortunately, you haven't been in the news recently. Did an interview with J uh, Lizzie Johnson, a, a Northern Californian writer on Paradise. Um, one town struggled to survive an American wildfire. What happens if we don't get this right? Are all this forests going to just disappear and burn down? Well, it's a really interesting question. There is going to be more fire. Um, you know, in the early 2000s, we lived out in the country, and I was a volunteer firefighter for five years. And the number of fire, I, I enjoyed fighting fire, but I didn't get to go out on very many. Uh, it was more cleaning up traffic accidents uh, and that sort of thing. Now, um, that's, that's not the problem that we have. But it's interesting, Andrew, uh, around here, and you're familiar with this region as well, you see um, fires that have gone through here in the last five years 
that are renewing the ecosystems uh, and other spots uh, where they burn so hot, uh, they scorch things uh, to such an extent that it's going to take a very long time uh, to come back. And I think at this point, people don't really have uh, uh, an accurate reading on to what extent are fires um, doing work that needs to be done on our landscape, uh, even wildfires, uh, and to what extent are they uh, compromising our, our ecosystems? Well, if you want an accurate take on the current state of the world's big forests, um, need to read John W. Reed and Thomas E. Lovejoy's new book, Saving Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. It's an important new book for anyone who cares about saving the planet. And that, of course, should be all of us. Congratulations, John, on the book. It's a huge undertaking. Done a lot of traveling and writing and committing yourself to this project, a wonderful project. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to uh, Evergreen in late March 2022, John? <laughs> um, well, I recently read Joy Williams' book, Harrow. Uh, and I, I love fiction. Uh, and she, uh, this book is from last year, and she just does this beautiful job of writing about the end of the world with. Uh, like side splitting humor. Uh, and I think that's such a, it's such a gift to us that to con continue this work, uh, we have to be able to keep laughing, um, but not cheap laughs, um, ones that are from a, from a deep place. Uh, and so I just marvel at the way she brings humor and incredible language together with tragedy. And finally, John W. Reed, the co-author of Evergreen. John, who runs the world in late March 2022? Who's in charge these days? Uh, biology, chemistry, and physics.